The Book of Esther is filled with intrigue, both in its historical commendation into the canon of Scripture and its plot in general. Indeed, today the Book of Esther would be a box office hit. It's filled with political scandal, dramatic flares, sex and drunken slurring, and it features a strong female lead and is filled with bumbling men. The book also does not mention the divine name once. That's right, God does not appear in the book of Esther by name, character, or otherwise, which is why its inspiration has been contested throughout church history. Many feel that it's a simple apologetic or fanfare for the nation of Israel. This, of course, is obviously ridiculous, since it shows us so profoundly how the snake crusher will come and it fits so neatly into the biblical narrative. And while God may not appear by name or character, like a burning bush to Moses or an angel to Joshua, God's power does show up in profoundly miraculous ways throughout the book. You see, the book of Esther is about God showing up. God revealing his sovereign purposes to the people who are not even close to Israel. Today, we are exploring the book of Esther this is Bible Unbound. for joining us on our exploration through the Bible. We are going Genesis to Revelation, tracing one main theme throughout the book. This season, we're talking about the snake crusher. For You see, the Messiah was prophesied in Genesis 3, that there will come a man to crush the head of the snake. Since then, all the biblical authors seem to be holding up the main characters to scrutiny to see if they truly will come to crush the head of the snake or be crushed by it. Cain, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, even Israel are all examined characters. In the book of Esther, we get a peculiar conundrum to untangle, but we must put ourselves into the shoes of those Israelites who have traveled back to the promised land out of captivity. Remember in the last episode, we talked about how three caravans of Israelites went back to the promised land during the reign of King Cyrus. This narrative is launched from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah being two of those leaders of the caravans. If you were amongst those who went back to Israel from Babylon, you would have strong feelings for the years that have passed since you last left Israel. If you were taken alive, it likely means that your family was not, and you have been forced to take a new name, your customs, your culture has been obliterated. So going back to Israel was strange, to say the least. It was a profound mixture of trusting in the God of your fathers, the ones that they talked about, which engineered a sort of pride and spirituality within you and in all the people around you, while at the same time, a deep, abiding sense of Bitter confusion would be bearing up inside of you for those around you, those you left behind, 
and for God. For you have to relearn how to be the nation of Israel again. What will that mean for your life? For your business? Even for your family, if you took a new one? All of these strong feelings were poured out in many different directions throughout the nation of Israel. But a pretty common feeling would have been a hatred for those who stayed behind. These people were no longer viewed as true Israelites after the exiles returned. They were viewed as faithless, dishonest, untrustworthy, since the Israelites, they, they had a choice to go back or to stay. And the people that stayed chose to stay. And yes, they stayed for a variety of reasons, but none of those would have mattered to you. The fact is that they would have chosen to cut themselves off from the family of Israel, and you would have treated them that way. After all, returning to the war-torn homeland of their ancestors appealed very little to them. But it would appear that they chose the gods of Babylon. They chose the security of Babylon. They chose to ignore the prophetic warnings of Daniel that Babylon was going to be destroyed. And more than that, some Israelites in Babylon chose to move even farther east. The east, remember, being a symbol of being far from God after Adam and Eve were banished to the east. They moved farther east to the capital Susa in the land of Persia. But when our ship docks in the book of Esther, we find that they are not far from God at all. In fact, God is very close to the Hebrews in Babylon. God sees to it that this Jewish remnant is protected and loved, even being deep in exile. For throughout the book of Esther, we see God break through in marvelous, miraculous ways. The book starts off with the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, which was the Jewish name given to him. His, his Persian name was King Xerxes. King Xerxes is throwing two massive feasts. The historical feasts of Persia were massive, after all, sometimes lasting several months, and these two at the beginning of Esther are no exception, lasting six months. The king is displaying his greatness and his splendor, putting it on display for all to see and inviting hundreds of royals and dignitaries from all over his massive kingdom that stretched from India all the way through to the Middle East. After several days of drinking, the king requests his wife, Queen Vashti, dance an erotic dance for all of the guests. But the queen refuses to show off her beauty. And so, in line with the king's desire to declare his greatness, puts out a decree that says all men must be masters of their households, and wives are to submit to their husbands. You would do well to remember that this is the very curse from the garden coming to fruition through the cracks of human brokenness, but we'll get to that in a minute. But because the queen dishonors the king in front of the guests, the king requests that he betroth a new wife. He has been dishonored, and she must be banished. So, to find the most beautiful woman in the kingdom, the king holds a beauty pageant, of which Esther, a Jewish woman, wins, and she becomes the new queen. Now, 
Esther is an interesting character. For one, she's Jewish in the midst of Persians. She has family all across the kingdom. Uh, but one whom she is very close to is named Mordecai, and Mordecai just so happens to be her cousin. Mordecai conspicuously hears that the king will be assassinated, and he tells Esther. Esther tells the king, and the king is saved by Mordecai via Esther. Next, the story moves on and we meet Haman. Haman is actually a Canaanite, an ancient enemy of the Jews. So when Haman requests everyone bow down to him, and the Jewish man Mordecai refuses, it does not bode well. Haman convinces King Xerxes to destroy all of the Jewish people in the kingdom. The king then makes a decree, and what the king decrees cannot be undone. They throw a feast. Meanwhile, Esther and Mordecai hatch a plan to save their people. It's simple, really. They ask. Duh. <laughs> but there's only one problem with this plan, and it's that Esther is not allowed to speak to the king out of turn. She must wait for the king to come to her, and there's no time for that. So instead of approaching the king and asking for something, she approaches the king and doesn't say a word. The intrigue. The next day, Esther throws a massive feast and invites Haman, who gets very drunk. That same night, the king is in his chambers, tossing and turning in his bed, and he can't sleep, and so he requests one of his servants read him the history of the kingdom, where he learns, in an almost comical turn of events, that just a few years earlier... Mordecai saved his life. Shocked by this news, the king calls Haman into his chambers and orders that he lift Mordecai up in a chair and parade him all around town, praising him publicly. Haman is outraged, since he has to lift up the man who would not bow down to him. But we cut away, and we find Esther throwing another large feast, another gathering. But here, she declares herself to be a Jewish woman, a secret that she has kept since she has become queen, and she declares it to everyone who is present. She claims she was betrayed by Haman, who convinced the king to kill all of the Jewish people. So when the king hears of this, well, he's pissed. Pardon my French. His life was not only saved by a Jewish man, which he just learned, but he is married to a Jewish woman and finds out that his number two has been going behind his back to be vindictive and murderous towards the Jewish people. The king resolves to have Haman killed publicly. But when Esther and Mordecai approach the king about canceling the decree to kill all of the Jewish people, they learn that he cannot. It is Persian law that the king cannot cancel a decree he's made. And so instead of canceling it, he decides to reverse it, arming the Jewish people and decreeing that they must defend themselves against their enemies. The Jewish people, they succeed in defending themselves, and there's one final banquet that becomes the Jewish holiday of Purim, after the Hebrew word for dice, pure. And the tale fades out. What? A roller coaster. 
But intrigue aside, what could we make of all of its ups and downs if we cannot understand what this tells us about the snake crusher? What is it doing in the biblical narrative? Well, to understand that, we must go back to the beginning. You know, okay, I have a confession. I actually considered skipping over the book of Esther for several reasons that we'll see here in a minute. But after thinking about it for a long while, I just couldn't get over the several profundities that the book offers. It's so good. I encourage you to go and read it this afternoon. It doesn't take long. It, even slow readers, it'll take maybe an hour. For one, it's a hotly disputed book in its canon of the Bible because, well, in the beginning, God chose a specific family to bring about the blessing of his salvation through, and that family is the family of Israel. He said he would do this unconditionally, but if they were to remain a holy nation, if they were to remain set apart, they were supposed to follow a set of rules, a code of conduct that would set them apart from all of the other nations, and this was a conditional covenant. So then what happens when the nation of Israel becomes virtually indistinguishable from all of the other nations? That's what seems to have happened in the book of Esther, and that's what it would seem the book of Esther is trying to explain. Did you notice while we were recapping the entire story that there were several feasts made by several key characters? They're hard to miss, they lasted several months. Did you note who threw those feasts? Long and elaborate parties and festivals, they weren't unprecedented in the ancient world. The book of Esther starts with a six-month feast, as we talked about. Several apocryphal books make note of feasts lasting four or more months. And King Xerxes, who was this King Ahasuerus we talked about, he was famous for commissioning the writing of the history of Persia, and there he notes how feasts were often long, elaborate festivals. They would include tours of the kingdom, envoys, dinners, and much, much more. And so they were a Persian hallmark. But by the end of the book, Esther is the one throwing large and elaborate feasts for all the Persians. And if you were to go and read the book of Esther this afternoon, you might notice one glaring omission from the cast of characters. Yahweh! the hallmark of the Jewish tradition. But he isn't mentioned once. Neither are sacrifices, purifications, rituals, or holidays other than Purim, this new one. It's as though Yahweh were erased from their hearts and minds as we travel deep into the book of Esther. And yet, throughout the book, there are these miraculous interventions by God to people who don't seem to recognize him as God at all. And isn't that just like him as we've seen before? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. There was chaos. And the voice of God broke through that chaos and darkness to bring light and order. In a miraculous reversal of events, God breaks through. 
Indeed, the book of Esther retells the entire biblical narrative in this inverted fashion, as it starts in the garden of a king, where we meet a man and a woman. However, this king is an earthly king, and the garden is an earthly garden, and he hates the woman, for she will not submit to him. And then this Jewish woman is selected to represent the pinnacle of creation within this kingdom. But they're hated, and they're refused at every turn, unable to access the king directly. But there's one consistent similarity to the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that's at the turning point, when Esther comes and holds a three-day fast in which she does not eat nor drink. Here, she beseeches the one true king of the universe, and he answers. And it should not be mistaken that it was her fast that saved the Jewish people, necessarily. For remember, she was born for such a time as this. She was elected to her high place in the kingdom by God. Mordecai overheard the plot to kill the king because of God. Esther entreated the king of Persia because of God. She fasted because of God. They won because of God. God's providential hand guided the entire story through and through, like a master craftsman weaving together a beautiful tapestry. And so, the book of Esther shows us one very important and profound truth about its main character, Yahweh. And thus, by proxy, as we've discussed, it shows us one important and profound truth about the anointed Messiah. That he will not leave nor forsake his people. He will break through the silence and the chaos of the lives of his people and bring peace, order, joy, victory, salvation. The Messiah will be known because he will be unlike anything seen before him or after him. The Messiah will be known because he, too, will break through. And sometimes, as we see in Esther, the Messiah will break through and move close to people who it would not seem deserve it. By all Jewish accounts, customs, and laws, the people of the East should be considered Gentiles, and indeed, by the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, are considered Gentiles. The people of the East should not be considered Jewish, and God would not, could not be active in their lives. But yet, here we are. I don't want to talk too much about this now, since we will pull out this theme and many, many others that we've already talked about within the prophetic books. And with that being said... I should note and spend a short bit of time explaining what's going to be happening after this episode. If you've been listening to Bible Unbound since January, one holy cow, you're an unbelievable person. I bet you smell like roses and chocolate milk. You probably have really good skin or something because your just awesomeness radiates out from every pore of your body. But anyway, it also means that we have officially explored and dug into every narrative book of the Old Testament. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, we have covered how the messianic theme shows up in every narrative book of the Old Testament, and to me, that is simply unbelievable. But it also means that things 
they'll get a little weird here, because isn't the whole point of this season to show how each main character points us toward the coming messiah? Points us toward the snake crusher? Well, yes, of course, that's what we're doing, but leading off with Esther, we see that main characters kind of get a little ambiguous from now on, and so the prophetic and wisdom literatures of the Old Testament are no different, but they show us a lot about who the Messiah will be and what he will come to do, so we are nowhere near finished. Just to give you a little taste, we have to explore the powerful human emotions of the Psalms. We have the picture of the perfect Israelite in Isaiah, the Bethlehemite from Micah, and we have so much more to explore and to discover within the biblical epic. And so next week, we will be doing a recap of everything we've talked about up until now, and so we can have crystal clear memory going in to the rest of the biblical narrative. And from there, we will launch into the first book of the wisdom literature with Job. So stick around because we have a lot to discover. My name is Austin. This was Bible Unbound, and we will see you next week. <laughs>